There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Did I say we're rolling? Yeah, like you said it, like right as I was about to start talking. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Going Off Track. My name is Jonah. I'm Steven. And Brad. And together we are... Going (laughs) Off... Um, (laughs) Today on the show, we have a very special guest, um, Chris Conley, who you may know from Saves the Day. And this Two Tongues. Two two Tongues was his band with Max Bemis. not sure how many people know him through that. <laughs> um, some of you, maybe. Uh, but uh, yeah, Chris, this was like a really important podcast to me because Chris is super busy and uh, he was difficult to get in here, but he really made an effort to do it and his publicist and everyone was so cool about it. And I haven't wanted this forever just to talk to him about meditation <laughs> and the meaning of life and existential stuff because I feel like he is such a happy guy with such an amazing grasp on life, right? He's such a cool dude. And like yeah. you hear about just his life and how he thinks. I don't know. He's he's a paradigm for all of you. Yes. Can you imagine if you first heard Two Tongues and then you're like, I wonder who this guy is. And then you go and find out the back catalog. Yeah. I love that, actually. I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, totally. But yeah, I mean, uh, like we talk about in the podcast, I, I saw these guys on their, today on their first first tour. I uh, The first cover story I ever wrote for AP was on Saves the Day when I was like... 22 so it's like to me uh these guys have just like kind of like marked so many phases of my life and it's so cool to see that they're milestones for yeah you. totally and they've continued to sort of evolve and it's weird like i feel like you know me and chris's relationship you know like like we talk about i gave a really bad review to in reverie like <laughs> and just the way he kind of takes things in stride and looks at the big picture to me is really inspiring and you guys should check out his new record, uh, Saves the Day's new record. They're they're back on Equal Vision. It's called Saves the Day, and it's way different from their last record, like the one before it was. But it's kind of just I feel like it's just Chris is kind of unfiltered, just expression. And I feel like you have to just like love that energy. I guess like regardless of what you think of any of the songs, like to me, it's just I just like listening to that dude's thoughts. The dude is an artist, and it's cool to hear. Yeah. So um, yeah. We can shut up and let Chris blow your mind. At one point during this interview, I do ask him what the meaning of life is. And he goes for it. Yeah, and he has a pretty good answer, actually. Probably one of the best answers I've heard. So if you want the secrets to life, listen to Chris Conley talk now. It's going on! 
Today on Going Off Track, our guest is Chris Conley from Saves the Day. Hi, Chris. Hi. How How's are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's Thank very you good to be here. So much for coming. I brought you this shirt that I bought in Thailand recently. Oh my gosh. Stay what you are. Wow. It hey, was look at that, like dude. Three dollars, and I figured some it would come in handy somewhere. So that is the original. Should. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Where'd you find you that? Give in it Thailand? to your daughter. Or I something. sure will, dude. Uh, I was at. She a, wears Saves the Day shirts really? at night, like for PJs. Nice. <laughs> really big ones, like all the extra larges that we don't sell. <laughs> That's amazing. That's awesome. The eternal quandary of how many extra larges to make. Always too many. Always Way too, too many. many. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was thinking about, it's my birthday tonight. Hey, was, man. Thank you. That's so great. But it's so funny that you're here because I feel like I've shared so many weird milestones with you. Like my first cover story ever for AP yeah. was on you guys when that record came out. Yep. And uh, it's it blows my mind just that it's so awesome to me that you you guys are still doing this. Oh, yeah, man. And uh, I'm still sort of doing the same thing. But I yeah. remember the first time I was thinking about today, I saw you guys was in Mentor, Ohio at this place, Kickers. Uh, Cancel it on tour. You guys played oh, in the wow. basement. And my friend Chris's band opened and did a Lifetime cover. Oh, I remember that show. I remember it. Yeah, downstairs and there were like beams or pillars or yeah. whatever, like poles in the middle of the room. It was a very awkward room. And I remember them playing turnpike gates i think yep and feeling awkward <laughs> at the time i remember it to sound like this band lifetime oh yeah and uh got a lot of flack for it it's an okay to sound like that band i think it's great yeah, yeah. they're awesome yeah i think th- i think those guys their idea was that you guys would think it was cool slash funny right, and then right. i think it just turned out to be one of those things where it's like awkward bad it idea. was probably like the night before we had been you know insulted in some way <laughs> you know came in just with chip on our shoulder yeah but uh in hindsight i think it's hilarious yeah it's pretty funny but i bet you don't get a lot of lifetime comparisons anymore no not on the new (laughs) the new records not since cancel down yeah in fact it was funny in the early days we put out cancel down everyone's saying you guys sound like lifetime and then we put out through being cool and the complaint was you guys don't sound like lifetime anymore what happened you slowed down yeah one of the uh, german interviews we did like after through being cool or whatever, somebody was like, your first album is called Cancel Down, and your second album, You Slow Down, Explain. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like um, we were always getting some sort of feedback, you know, with uh, the changing of the sound over the years. Whether it was my voice changing or, you know, the, the actual sonics changing. You know, we're always hearing it from somebody. But yeah, we don't get the lifetime anymore. I think now people just compare our records to the last one that came out. Right. And I'm ready for that. <laughs> let's let's do it. How dare you evolve as an artist. I know, right? Yeah. I mean, what... Do you still relate to that guy, maybe, from Cancel Down? Because it seemed like you oh, were yeah, kind of dude. so... It was so... Ang- those first couple records, there was so much kind of anger and frustration and yeah. heartbreak. And then I it- feel melancholy. Like, when I listen back to them or, you know, we had to play the whole record uh, in a live stream recently. So I was going through the songs a lot and all these memories and emotions were coming back. And the thing that came to me the most was this memory of melancholy. And I don't think I could put my finger on it at the time, but it was all in the lyrics. You know, you can feel that this kid was pretty sad, you know. But I also feel that he was reaching for something better, you know. I don't think uh, he was w- wallowing, you know. 
Uh, I think he was trying to grow. And I, I still connect to those lyrics when we sing them now. They feel so real, you know, because they were, they were honest at the time. So it's cool to go back and remember. Do you think, are a lot of those songs kind of early on about specific people? No, very few songs are about specific people, um, which sounds kind of strange to some folks, but they're about um, these overwhelming feelings, you know, and if, if I don't have an outlet for them, uh, I'll write it down and just try to let it out through words. That's my tool to cope with things. And um, I think the the language allows me to release the words in a way. Uh, maybe if I were a kickboxer, I would have a different outlet, but I'm not. <laughs> I write. so Less bloody noses. A lot less bloody <laughs> noses. Maybe more so in the lyrics. A lot more bloody noses in the lyrics than there have actually been bloody noses in my life. There's some bloody, gory moments in the lyrics. Though. A lot, a lot. I have to, I have to credit Morrissey for that because yeah. I was so into the Smiths, and um, that sort of juxtaposition, the the happy sounding music, you know, the really cheerful pop songs, and then these awfully sad lyrics, you know, and if a ten ton truck killed the both of us, kind of thing, right. Um, that was, that spoke to me because I'm an optimist. I love life, but I was just born sensitive to the, to the world and, uh, had to go through all that. Well, I remember when I did that AP story and I guess that was, I don't know, 11 years ago, something like that. I mm -hmm. remember talking to you about the lyrics and you being like, I'm not really, I don't want to really nail anyone on a cross physically. Like right. this is a metaphor. And I felt right. like. People didn't get that. And I felt like at the time, I almost sort of didn't get that because I was so used to things, especially in that world, coming from such a literal context. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I've, I felt a little weird when people would say, you know, are you okay? Is there something wrong? Because the lyrics are so extreme. Um, but again, that's just my way of processing the, the big feelings or the big um, thoughts and uh and it's helpful you know so um i did an interview recently with dan ozzy and he was asking me you know what do you what do you say to people that think that there's you know too much violence in your in your lyrics and i had never even thought of that you know it just doesn't occur to me because i'm writing it for myself and um and like you say it's not directed at a certain person it's more directed at my inner feeling of alienation or whatever definitely and then i talked to you a couple of years ago when the 10-year anniversary came out for ap they did like that class of 2002 or something mm -hmm. and we talked about sort of stay it was about stay what you are but sort of about you kind of discovering eastern religion mm. kind of around that time and how that figured in i mean do you think that helped you kind of shift your kind of outlook i guess or do you think it was yeah, just growing up? You know what's funny? Um, talking about revisiting Can't Slow Down, I noticed in some of those lyrics there are these questions that are more philosophical. You know, even songs like Obsolete is almost about the nature of happiness. And uh, there's some line about in in that state of mind, there's no state of self. I don't know where that came from. But, uh, you know, fast forward 
uh, years later, I had, uh, you know, had a, that near-death experience in a car accident, and things were kind of dawning on me in a different way. And um, I became interested in those things, I think, also as a natural part of my own evolution, you know, being kind of like sensitive teenager guy, uh, but also an optimist and wanting to be okay and feel at peace. I think that was inevitable for me. Like eventually I was going to start thinking about the bigger things. Um, but the car accident definitely propelled me quickly into those deep thoughts, you know? Um, but it's funny noticing those questions in the early stuff. You know, so I think my mind was on a certain wavelength. Definitely. Could you talk about the accident really? Because I feel like that was such a long time. I mean, I remember yeah. that photo shoot, Dave, like popping his teeth out. <sighs> yeah, it was it was gnarly, man. I mean, so we were on our way from um, Chicago to Minneapolis on tour with H2O and Kill Your Idols. And uh, we just hit a patch of black ice and spun off the road and went down the embankment and um, like flipped onto the side of the vehicle and then popped back up onto our wheels and the trailer snapped off, shot down the road. And um, it's a miracle none of us died, but I woke up, I was asleep in the back when we hit the black ice and I woke up hearing David screaming, you know, oh my God. I'd never heard anything like that before. I mean, it was really chilling. And I woke up into that moment um, out of the black, you know, and he's screaming and we're not on solid ground, you know, starting to move around on the road and you can feel that, you know, where it's really slippery feeling. Um, and then we just smashed down onto the ground and I was in the back um, and uh, against the window, and we smashed down on that side of the van where I was lying. So my collarbone, like, just cracked against the window, and we hit the ground. And then we we got flipped back up onto our wheels, and uh, and then suddenly we were stopped. And uh, I think we were all looking around to see if anybody was really seriously injured, and David just immediately jumped out of the van and he was bleeding all over the snow. So there's all this just like paint everywhere. It was weird, you know, red everywhere on the snow. And he was going, oh my God, I lost my teeth. I lost my teeth. Um, cause his teeth were gone. And, uh, we, we realized later when, the vehicle was inspected that uh, his teeth were still in the steering wheel. Ugh. So he had, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Um, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. None of us were wearing seatbelts. That is absolutely crazy. And a, a total miracle that we lived, you know, so it, it opened my eyes right away. I mean, within 10 minutes, I was going, what happened? Um, but uh, I didn't even realize that I had a broken collarbone for a while, you know, because it was uh, so strange. You know, the adrenaline and everything, and you're in shock, and David's outside walking around going, my God, my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. 
and uh, it was it was really really a nightmare and then um h2o happened to be driving by in their bus and saw the flip trailer so they stopped circled back around and i think they took some of us to the hospital and david and i were put on i was put on a flatbed and had one of those neck things and just strapped into that thing and that was the that was the worst agony of my life so far being strapped into that thing i'm sure other people that have been there know what it's like you can't move your head at all and you're strapped down like it hurts the back of your head like torture and i was in in that thing for hours until they could x-ray me so i mean it was awful um (laughs) and i didn't know anything about meditation I think now I would have just done my breathing. (laughs) Well, it was a trip. Now we're on the other side. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It was nuts. But we kept going. So we were on tour, and we we took the week getting better in Wisconsin. We were like halfway in between Chicago and Minneapolis or wherever we were. Uh, And we took a week to get better, and we were camped out in this hotel room in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and David had to keep going to the hospital every day, and he'd get, like, little reconstructive surgeries done. They had to, like, rebuild his nose and his jaw and stuff, and they took years and years and years to, to rebuild his jaw to a point where he could actually get the, the dental implants. Um, but David, while we were in La Crosse, kept going to the hospital, and then finally, uh, Vagrant Records sent a van out to meet us because our van was totaled they sent a van to meet us we said we're going to stay on tour we don't want to quit we don't want to stop and they drove a van out to meet us and then we got in the van david stayed behind for more surgery we drove to seattle to meet the tour and we played one show without david and uh i was in a sling and uh and then he flew out to meet the tour and we just kept going so we missed a, just a handful of shows yeah I'm proud of that i mean i think that's probably equally dumb but uh <laughs> and, we lived and we weren't going to stop yeah and at least you weren't playing guitar in the band yet yeah yeah <laughs> i had stopped playing guitar yeah when we first started the band i was a guitar player singer oh really i didn't yeah. know that that's why I went back to it after years, because it feels more natural for me. And the reason that I put the guitar down is we started playing these hardcore shows, and you'd have all these other bands with the free-floating singer that could really engage the audience. And I'd be up there like on my guitar, you know, playing stuff that sounded like Smashing Pumpkins, and it seemed odd, you know? We were the one band other than like Shift that did that at that time in those tiny little VFW hall shows. And so that's why I started to be just the singer. Did you ever feel like a part of that scene? Because I felt like you guys were, like, obviously having Sean the band and being an EVR, and yeah. you guys played, you know, with Endeavor, whoever. But, I mean, did you always feel on the outside of that? Because you were so different, but it did sort of have that element to the music. Yeah, you know, I guess, yeah, I did feel like we were different musically. But I also just felt like a kid, like a little kid. Like So to me, I was just a fan of all of it. So I couldn't believe that we got to play shows with these guys, any of those bands that I used to go watch on my own. You know, It was just strange and cool. When we got to play with Lifetime, it was just 
wild, you know. And I and then we finished the set, and I was the guy in the front row singing all the words for their set. Um, so I think uh, I was always very thankful to be um, a part of it, you know. And I felt lucky to be accepted by these other bands. And in the early days, it really seemed like the bands were our biggest supporters. You know, because we had a lot of people saying we sounded like Lifetime at the shows, you know, people could be more critical, but the bands were always into it. They could tell, you know, we were these dudes that did a pretty cool thing, you know, and we were good kids, <laughs> you know, and uh, and we just fit in with the bands. And so I think that has a lot to do with uh, how we became part of that world. We were like the little guys and they took us under their wing and you guys were seffler was that your band before yeah it's called okay. seffler and that's just a random i don't know where that name came from but uh we kept changing our names every time we'd sort of stumble upon some new sound uh you know when i first started playing it sounded like led zeppelin because <laughs> i was coming from the cello playing single notes you know so it's all like riffs and stuff and then I got really into Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and it started to sound like that. And every time we would switch a sound, you know, it would be a new name. And so eventually we started to sound like Rancid and Jawbreaker. And that's when we changed our name to Seffler for some reason. And then we got into Grill Biscuits and Lifetime and then the songs that I wrote sounded like that. So suddenly it sounded like a completely different band which has always been the case, but we changed our name to Saves the Day at a certain time when a lot of people started to recognize what we were doing, so the name stuck. But because the sound evolves all the time, certainly could continue to change the name, but that would be silly. <laughs> that, would, that would mean you're from D.C. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can think of very few bands that kind of started where you guys started and got to where you are and had this kind of trajectory in between i mean where does that sort of come from i guess like where what's your inspiration because i feel like a lot of bands once they get something successful like oh people like this this is right. what we should keep doing yeah well i'm not doing it at all for um for stardom <laughs> you know what i mean i when we started that there was no notion of stardom you know i think uh some people get involved in entertainment because they want to sign autographs and i never even consider myself an entertainer you know i just like to write songs i mean it's almost strange that i became a frontman for a band because it's not my personality uh <laughs> and um you you can see that i think when you meet artists you can see it instantly whether they're in it because they they would be doing it even if nobody were there or if they need people to be there to do it. I think it's, it's clear. Um, but, uh, I was always astonished when people would like the music, but, um, because the reason that I do this is for myself, there's no reason to stop when it became successful to stop my own, exploration of music i'm just having fun with music you know it's really genuinely a blast when i get into the studio i'm off tour 
I mean, that's my favorite time to be alive. I mean, my days in the studio fly by. It's not enough time. You know, I could live there forever and just make up new stuff every day. That's just, that's just fun for me. And I just watch it change on its own because I'm not consciously thinking of what it wants to sound like. I'm just sitting down and having fun. I mean, really just playing. You know, either it's on the keyboard or a guitar or it's just a melody that popped into my head or I'm playing drums and I figure out this cool groove and then I loop that and then I jam with that. You know, it's literally just fun, having fun. And that's how I write. So then uh, there isn't that conscious critic, you know? Right. But there are actual critics like me. Yeah. And I remember I gave a really bad review to In Reverie. Yeah. And I took it, that record like personal. Like I was, <laughs> I was like so angry. And That's cause, great. Because I had loved everything and it was so not up to that point and it was so not what I expected. Yeah. And I remember I wrote that and then we did a feature on you guys and they said something like in our review, like I said something like you guys went backwards or something yeah. and you were like, I don't, how can I go back? Like, yeah. And looking back, it's like, uh. Yeah, it's interesting to like, I like talking about that kind of stuff after yeah. the fact. I think it's healthy too, because you don't know at the time, like perspective is something that comes after the fact, you know, and uh, for me, that experience going through in Reverie was important because now I know to just give things time, just be patient, whether it's something that's a big problem in the world, you know, that causes anxiety for people, or whether it's not a small hiccup in my own life. I know, just kind of take time with it. You don't know how things are going to turn out. You know, it's like that story of the uh, farmer and his son who uh, breaks his leg. Have you heard that one? No, I don't think There's like some farmer, and he's got like a really awesome horse, and uh, all his neighbors are like, you have the best horse. And he's like, maybe... Uh, but then one day the horse runs away and, uh, his neighbors are like, Oh, it's so sad. Your horse is gone. He says, maybe. And then the next day the horse comes back and, but it found a friend. So now he has two really good horses and his neighbors like, it's the best thing ever. And he's like, maybe, I don't know, you know? Uh, and the next day his son goes off riding on the new horse, you know, and falls off, uh, and breaks his leg. All his neighbors are like, that's so sad, you know? And he's like, maybe. um the next day the army comes into town and they're recruiting and they're going to take everybody's uh sons all the sons in town but his son can't go because he's got a broken leg and his neighbors go well what good luck i can't believe it and he's like maybe because then he's got a son just loafing around the house that's not carrying buckets of water anymore but it's funny you know it's just you never know right how things are going to turn out when, so, when did you get interested in meditation? I think um, right around Stay What You Are. After the van accident, um, I started to just kind of wonder about things, you know, realizing how fragile things are and how we're kind of like poised on that that sort of teetering edge of danger all the time. I mean, literally, we are vulnerable. Uh, you know, I started to wonder about it because you recognize that it could just be gone at any moment. So start to wonder about life itself. You know, what is it? I don't understand, you know, 
It's impermanent. It's going to go like everything's going to end. What is this? I don't understand. Even for the next million years, if people are still around, it's still just going to be generation after generation coming and going. What is the deal? You know, so I just started to wonder about it. And I don't honestly know if there are answers, but I do know that for me, um, my breathing is something to hold on to, you know, like actually like, uh, you know, a lifeline, (laughs) quite literally, you know. And um, it's always there, and it's always going back and forth. So it's a reminder for me that things go back and forth. <laughs> and that's the nature of it. And you can't stop it. It goes on its own. You have a limited amount of control over your breathing, but it's doing it by itself, you know? So it's kind of a biological metaphor on its own of the actual, the big nature of reality for me. And it's just helpful. I think I got into all that stuff just being alive in the world and, as I say, sensitive to it, you know, and kind of affected by it in a major way. So my internal life became, you know, worrisome, you know, anxious about things, um, probably concerned with things that aren't important, you know. Oh, somebody, you know, said what about how I looked in some picture, you know things that might hurt your feelings, you know? Yeah, totally. Just being this person that I am, it was necessary to, uh, to learn how to be comfortable. And that's all it is for me, whether it's meditation or just being aware of yourself, you know, in the moment, like as you're going through your day, watching your feelings and thoughts and stuff, it, it's helpful for me. Just, it, it helps to be, um, in the world for me where I'm not frantic. Do you have like a particular kind of regiment? Like you try to do it daily for X minutes? I try or- to do it. Yeah. I try to do it in the morning, um, for at least 15 minutes, but really it's just, it's just breathing, you know, and letting things happen. I just don't think that there's a lot of time to sit with yourself in our hectic modern day culture roll jam um and i think it's beneficial though to just take a second and even if it's five minutes like sitting on a couch you know not fiddling with your gadgets and stuff um not reading a book not walking around you know looking at stuff just being with yourself Because there are so many, I feel like there are so many like emotional mechanisms that are working, um, but need time to work themselves out, almost like digestion. But I think with the mental stuff, you have to be present for it to work itself out. You know, you can try to push all that stuff away, the stuff you don't want to think about for as, as long as it takes to get your errands done and whatnot. But eventually, you know... If you want to be at peace with things, you got to sit with it, all of it, every single thing that's there. Um, So it's become something for me that's just constant. You know, it's just constantly there. I'm just mindful of it or watching it, you know. Yeah, I think that's scary for a lot of people, though. It is. Well, it's funny. Um, I think of the the analogy sometimes of being thrown into the water, and uh, you think that you 
have to flail around to stay afloat. That just seems natural. Oh my gosh, I have to stay afloat. You know, you're struggling. You're fighting. Um, but really, if you just relax, you do float. And I think it's the same thing with the mental world. I do think it feels like drowning. And then if you stay with it and you watch it, oh my God, it's drowning. It feels like it's drowning. Wow, I feel like I can't breathe. You stay with it. It's like the tide crashing on the ocean. It seems tumultuous and then it just kind of goes away. It's amazing. And I think that's always there. You know, there's tension and then it gets released and tension and released. And I think it's natural to feel um, anxiety because, uh, as I said earlier, we are vulnerable beings, but also we live in a very strange world. And um, it's overwhelming. So good luck out there. Good luck in there. <laughs> Become that vessel floating down the waterway. Yeah, well, we are, you know, we yeah. are. And it's wild. It's always there. It's like it was always there. I remember when I first realized this stuff, I couldn't believe that I hadn't noticed that I was in the stream of time until then. We could get deep, man. We could go all the way. <laughs> I know, dude. That's why I wanted you to come in. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. I mean, how do you feel like technology, because I feel like technology is is so great in some ways, mm -hmm. but I do feel like not, I like sometimes I can't watch a movie without picking up my phone. Like uh -huh. It's such a constant yeah. distraction. I mean, do you feel like it's making us more connected or disconnected? I think it's definitely making people more connected. I mean, for example, I could see my daughter on my phone. I can see her and talk to her and we can be present with one another and I could read her story. You know, just like um, it, the future looked in the movies when we were kids. And that's wild. That's yeah. so cool. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. When I first started touring, there were no cell phones. They weren't ubiquitous. You had, they were pay phones everywhere, <laughs> you know? And you had your Atlas, you know, and there were no Google Maps and whatnots. Um, so I like the fact that there's more connected um, communication. Um, and I also think that uh, um, there is a frantic nature to our moder modern world that I don't, I don't think is really good or bad, but it's just it's more, it's just at a, a faster pace, you know? It's just everything's happening so fast. And uh, I, just, I just think it might be helpful to sit down for five minutes. You know, even if it were five minutes at the beginning of your day, um, that's not reading the newspaper or whatever, you know, just sit there for five minutes and you'll notice instantly all these emotions will come up. Um, and then, you know, they'll start to work themselves out and then go back to your phone. And I do this all the time, you know, I just make sure I have time for myself to breathe and know, make sure I'm relaxed and okay, you know, and just with it. And then I'll go back to my texting and, you know, uh, movies and whatever i always have movies on in the background always constantly um i like having that moving visual and so there is something about all this technology that makes me feel comfortable and relaxed i'm sure i'd be fine just hanging out in a dimly lit room too but it's really fun <laughs> to like 
you know, text with friends and and see cool, you know, comedy shows and stuff. And I like that stuff. I like being connected. But I feel like when I end up thinking about these deeper philosophical issues and sort of maybe how significant or insignificant we are, to me, it's so easy to make that leap into like, ugh, none of this matters. Like, where is it? it seems yeah, like nihilism. it inspires you. I feel like nihilism is an easy thing to fall into. Well, yeah, it's easy. I mean, clearly, I think there. You look at the world and you see that it's an hourglass. It's not going to get flipped over. It's just endless grains of sand. I mean, that's very scary. And it seems like, what's the point? Really, you know, ultimately, in a very large sense, what is the point? What's the point, Chris? I think I've been thinking about this a lot. I think the point is to be yourself a hundred percent. What else is there? Because it's ultimately fleeting. So there's no greater significance. You know, there's also the cosmos is infinitely vast. So there's no other place that you're going to go to. You know, there's no outside up there where you're going to go to, you know, and, um, you're not sure how long it's going to last, but you sure know you're here, and it's good, and it's crazy. It's wild, man. You just look at it, you know, and it's a trip. It is absolutely the most bizarre thing. Just sitting here, you can feel yourself in the chair. It's crazy. <laughs> We're not just like in free fall. I mean... Life is just a really beautiful thing, and I wonder why is it, you know? Uh, my friend Ted Alexander, actually, our old guitar player, was telling me recently at our original drummer Brian Newman's wedding, in fact, about a month ago, that he had this um, this dream, lucid dream, and uh, he was in a room with all these babies, and there was like a mother figure with all these babies walking around, crawling around, and he knew that she was a representation of, you know, the mother cosmos. And, uh, he asked her, why does it happen? And she said, what would it be like if it didn't happen? And I thought that was just great. I just think that's a great thing. And it came from the depths of his mind, you know? Um, and, uh, I am of the mind to go with it. I, I think it's great. I think it's clearly complicated and it's very hard to say it's great because the world is a f fucking mess. I'm sorry. Um, the world is a, is a giant, giant, scary place. And, uh, life itself is scary. You know, you're going to die? Whoa, what's that all about? <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, that seems to be something you don't bargain for once you're born. You're not asked right. for that, and then you're not, and you don't ask for that. But in between, you get to ask for a lot of stuff. So that just doesn't seem fair. It's really strange. Yeah, and I, but I feel like it's a constant lesson that we're not in control. You know, for me, like that's, that's a really important reminder. And maybe that's part of what we're doing here is remembering something. Learning something? I don't know. Read a lot of comic books? Uh, I don't read a lot, but the ones that I do read, I really enjoy. I enjoy. I liked um, Watchmen a lot. Mm -hmm. I know I, a lot of people like that one. You ever read Sandman? No. You, you'd like Sandman. It's yeah. Neil Gaiman's tome, and he has um, basic premises 
different beings have different embodiments of different aspects. And it's about, Sandman's about dream. But his sister's name is Death. And there's one storyline and Death is talking to her, her brother, Destruction, who quit. Because he's like, he, he quit because he saw no point in being around. And then he tried to be a painter, but he could never create anything because he was destruction. It's very funny. But he's talking to death and she says, you know, we're born knowing everything. And then we spend the rest of our lives telling ourselves we don't. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. It's, I like you, that a lot. You, you dig it. It's, it's a neat thing, but it kind of falls into everything you're talking about. Yeah. It's just. It's like a weird thing getting thrown into the world, being human. Mm-hmm. like aware of so much thinking on it <laughs> it's great though it's why your brain can't function that way until you're about six or seven yeah right it's the one thing that um catholics got right <laughs> i'd say forgive me but i don't care nor need it um they call it the age of reason it's when oh, they make you eat the you know the eucharist um huh. it's like your brain can comprehend that i personally don't believe that but your brain that's when you can reason because a child can't reason until they're a certain interesting they and yet they have these like profoundly deep deep insights mm-hmm. you know yeah i mean well, because I they have like, it based on it's based on nothing but what they see and what is yeah and what's really there and mm-hmm. i feel like what's really there is all you really need you know the rest of the um rules are i mean made up essentially i mean do good do do bad it's really just the fact that you're looking at you know a child might say well you know i didn't like how it felt when that person was crying after i said that thing there you go that is the rule oh don't do that it doesn't feel good and there's the flip side of that where you know a kid shoves another kid and you say tell him you don't mean it and the kid's like no i meant that yeah you know what that's true i mean there are a lot of different folks out there yeah i started to understand the world better when we were taking our daughter to school um like kindergarten for the first time because the kids that were mean on the playground would have parents that seemed kind of cold you know and Mm -hmm. so i started thinking about apples and trees You know, and it's just kind of interesting. I I don't think that's the case all the time, but I think most people are just products of their environment. How'd having a kid affect your songwriting? Because it seems like you draw from inside and that changes a whole lot about inside. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it changed me greatly as a person. And um, it was also a major reason to get over any internal negativity or any of those nihilistic tendencies. Um, Because there is a reason to stick around, you know, and be good. Uh, And um, my daughter is just such a gift in my life, you know, so it's it's just made me a more thoughtful, caring person. And I notice that um, I'm more compassionate for others because I recognize that we all start as these little people and we don't know what's going on, thrown into the circumstance of our family life. Um... And just load it up with a bunch of stuff. And, um, I, you know, I see grown people now and I just feel like, hey, are you all right? You doing okay? You need anything? You know, is your day okay? Want to talk about it? <laughs> you know, I just, I have a parental thing, but it's really more like, um, communion than anything. It feels like togetherness, like, um, hey, I know what we're all going through. I'm, I can be here for you. 
very interesting. I um, I heard, overheard someone talking to my wife's mother saying, isn't it weird watching your kids be parents? Wow, yeah. I wanted to be like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that is the strangest thing, though. I mean, I remember being a kid so clearly, and now I'm the dad, you know? So it's the weirdest. It's the most bizarre thing. And my daughter's eight now. I can clearly remember turning eight. You know, I remember my school and friends and everything. And so it's interesting to think of her at that point in her life, you know, and I'm the the parental figure for her. It's, it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. I still can't believe people I know have kids. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I rubbed hot sauce in my eye yesterday, you know, like it's <laughs> like, <laughs> no, you still do stupid oh, shit as a parent. Man. Yeah, that's Constantly. true. Constantly. That oh yeah, dude. I yeah. don't think you ever, I mean, for me, there was never like a moment where like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a parent now. You know, I mean, there, it was just a gradual process before we had her and, and, uh, along the way of going, wow, what is this all about? This is so amazing. I remember, uh, our, our producer, Rob Schnaff, who worked on two of our records was telling me he was about to have his, his first child and he was feeling reflective, went for a walk in the park, and he was sitting on the park bench. And this 80-year-old guy strolls up, and he said it looked a lot like his dad, you know, so he started thinking about his dad. And he suddenly realized, like, I'm about to have a kid, and I still just feel like the, the same old guy that I always was. And he had this realization thinking about his dad that it was the same for his dad, that he was just a, a kid that grew up, went about his life, started a career, started a family, then re- he was dad. <laughs> Suddenly he's dad. And Rob had this realization that like everyone is just that kid that just gets tall, you know? And then suddenly you're the the tall one that the little person is looking up to. But you're just still you. Mm-hmm. There's no threshold it's yeah, always there, just people. There's, there's a point in your life where your brain stops growing. And I don't mean like acquiring knowledge or whatever, but you get to a point where like, oh, this is where my head is. Right, right. And then your body keeps aging around it. <laughs> then you look in the mirror and you're like, what the, what, who is that guy? Yeah. You know? And then now I have kids who look at me and go, well, I know you and you're right. this to me. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm just, and you know very well what a complete idiot I am. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that they didn't they didn't know. That's the funny thing. Like my parents didn't know all the answers. They're just trying their best. Yep. I think about that all the time. Like they're just regular people that had me and then I'm this little person that doesn't know what's going on and you have all these wants and needs, but you can't have them all met because we live in a delicate ecosystem. So, you know, my parents have to tell you yes, this and no that and it's a weird experience you don't realize. That they're just, they they were kids too. And you don't realize that the phrase, because I said so, is really just the last resort to, right, I just like, don't know. We just can't stop reason it. yet. Yeah, we can't reason yet. Yeah. <laughs> like, get back to me when you're 10 years older. Yeah, and then I'll give you, then I'll ask why and we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we can get to the bottom of this or not. But until then, put your shoes on and stop screaming. Do you try yeah. to practice non-judgment in general? Um, well, I mean, I'm... I'd say I'm fairly judgmental. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I uh, 
I just have my own set of responses to the world. Like Stephen was saying, there are some kids where, you know, they get in a fight on the playgrounds, the other kid cries and they feel bad, but then there's some kids that push them down. They're like, I don't care. I definitely have uh, my own set of responses and uh, I care about the world. So when I see people, you know, acting foolishly, <laughs> I'm going to say something about it and I'm probably going to say, hey, why'd you do that? Um, but I was also raised by two judges. So I just had that firm sense of right and wrong. Literal judges? Actual judges. Um, my mom was the head of the appellate division in New Jersey. My dad was a judge for a long time and then didn't like being a judge and went back to being a lawyer. And um, so they were, you know, the two parents in black robes, you know, and I was an only child and there are gabbles all around the house. Like not that they would use them, but like <laughs> that was the environment that I grew up in. Law books, our entire, they had a library all full of law books and my mom's dad was a judge and my my grandfather's dad was a judge um so it's a long tradition of law in my family and you just and then just me <laughs> and i'm like little kid on a farm with no brothers or sisters so i only had my parents to sort of gauge my progress with you know oh okay wow they don't wet the bed gosh you know why you know what's the deal here Wow, they they speak with correct English. My dad's like big on grammar, and sorry, Dad, I gave up on that a long time ago. I'm, I'm over it now. But uh, you know, it's sort of interesting um, growing up in that environment. But so now, you know, being the adult uh, in in that life story, I see the world through their eyes. You know, that's what they made me. And so I see right and wrong everywhere I go. And I grew up going to the courtroom because they wouldn't have like a sitter, you know, so, uh, and they worked constantly. So I would go to the justice complex, you know, wherever in New Brunswick or Trenton and sit in on the trial. Like I'd just be a little kid sitting there hearing stories about gunfights and drug deals and um, it was insane, but, uh, you know, my folks were open and honest about the world, you know, and there are certain kinds of people, you know, that need to be, uh, reprimanded. And that's very true. I absolutely believe in that, but I think there's a real root of it and it's just practical in nature. You know, we, we need to cooperate, you know, no, you can't just walk around doing what, you want to do only um not only because it affects people emotionally and that's not right you know people are fragile and be nice but also because the the actual natural world is that delicate balance you know where we can't take too much you know but we probably want to and we probably do what was their reaction to oh our son's going to be in a band and maybe not study law that was weird. You know, that was weird for my parents. I think they were supportive because it was clearly something that I loved. And that was nice to see, you know, wow, their son has this um, thing that he's very passionate about. Um, and, you know, and I had gone through my angsty phase and I think that was nice for them to see me excited about things. But 
I think my dad felt like I could do anything that I wanted, and he felt like I could go to Harvard Law and just like him and, you know, be the dude out there saving the world, you know. Um, but uh, he was open enough to say, okay, you know, you got you to gotta do what you got to do. And, you know, all of his law partners and everything thought he was just crazy for letting me take a year off school. And, um, you know, I just had to do it. And I think now he brags to all his friends, you know, my son does what he loves. And how many people get to do that? So it's cool. He comes to all the shows. He's coming tomorrow. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did that just help your dealings with all the many labels you went through of like contracts going, oh, by the way, my parents are judges, so... It's funny, (laughs) you know, all of them joke about it, and, you know, they call my mom Your Honor. Mm -hmm. You know, they joke about it, and they know not to mess around and stuff, and she got us our first lawyer and everything (laughs) for the band, and so we were well protected. Um, uh, But, uh, you know, I think... My mom and dad also are really um, sweet people, like genuinely kind souls. So they're not scary at all. <laughs> do you do you identify as sort of a Buddhist or any kind of formalized thing, or do you just sort of have your own set of beliefs? I don't have any anything in particular that I would call myself. You know, no ists, but. Um, uh, I certainly identify with Buddhism probably the most just in its language because it's practical and psychological. It's not um, imagined. You know, it's looking at the actual facts of your mind and nature. Uh, I like Taoism a lot because it's based on nature and sort of poetic observations of nature. And I think that's all you really need is to look at the actual facts of life. I mean, it's there to show you. It shows you everywhere you go, there are lessons to be learned. Um, If you just look at what's going on within you and without. But I like Buddhism a lot, and I I listen to um, Joseph Campbell lectures constantly. He's my go-to guy. And he was a professor of comparative religion and mythology at Sarah Lawrence for like 40 years. And then he became a famous lecturer uh, and because he was an author, so people would come have him speak about his books and whatnot. But then he became sort of this celebrity um, with uh, and you know, influential folks. And you know, then who was the biggest? George Lucas. George Lucas was his like uh, probably biggest. Every worshiper. archetype is in Star Wars. Every single one. It's perfect, and especially Did you read the going. Power myth? No. Oh, I got to get that to you. It's okay. fantastic. Yeah. I have yeah. so many of his books, mm-hmm. and um, I have the audio books as well and lectures. So I have over 100 hours of Joseph Campbell on my iPod. <laughs> and so I stick that in my ear every night as I'm going to sleep. And he talks about um, all of the world religions and all of the stories from the ages. And so... Uh, he does a great job of synthesizing the truth, I think. You know, saying, this is what they're all saying. And uh, he certainly doesn't skimp over any of the religions. He visits all of them and shows you what they're saying beneath the symbols, you know? Have you, do you have the dollar bill lecture? 
No. Oh, that's a great one. That's in that's in the power of myth where he'll pull out a dollar bill and he'll go through every single symbol on the dollar. Oh my sh- gosh, that's awesome! And show how smart, like how smart people were who you know put the currency together and what symbols there are because you have you know the um, in God we trust was thrown about from the 19th century, but it wasn't it wasn't made the official model until like 52, or that might be when under God was put in the Pledge of Allegiance. One of the two, but. Then you got E Pluribus Unum, which is the complete opposite, you know. Yeah. And then you've got the symbol of it sounds very national treasure, but it's not. It's all in there. No, so but it's, I it's, think it's like the, it's like you have the the eye, you know, the eye of Horus. Yeah, the all-seeing then, eye. Yep, you have that. And then you've got the pyramid, and he would go yep. like all this. And people put this in because they're smart, yeah, not because they're a secret society. It's because, right, exactly. I think the language of symbolism has been known for so long, and the power of those symbols is real. Mm-hmm. And I think people that can harness them know what they're doing. I saw somebody drive the other day and it had a Masonic sticker, but then Knights of Columbus, then something else. And I was like, wow, they just want to be covered by everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> no matter what the cop is, they're not going to get that ticket. <laughs> Crack exactly. Joseph Campbell did, uh, recorded a lot of the, Bill Moyers did the interviews. Yeah. And they recorded them at Skywalker Ranch. I think yeah, it was the that's 70s, I'm thinking. It was in the 80s, actually. Okay, it was sorry. in the last two summers of his life. Yeah. And uh, he died in 1987. Mm. And, and they. Uh, they did that series for PBS yep, called that's Power it. of Myth. Yeah, and then they did made a book out of that. And um, yeah, that apparently was, after it aired, the most requested program in the history of public television, or at least uh, PBS. And uh, that was astonishing. I just randomly saw that, actually. It was perfect timing. I'm talking about when all this stuff was like dawning on me. Perfect timing. After the van accident, starting to think about stuff in between tours at home, hanging out late one night with Ted, um, flipping around the TV and we see something about Star Wars, you know, and we're like, cool, let's watch Star Wars. But it's not Star Wars. It's these two old guys talking about Star Wars and we're like, what is this? But we watch for a second and they start talking about these incredible stories of, um, philosophical truth you know and we were blown away like our minds were blown and the simple truth that joseph campbell can bring out of all of those myths uh is powerful and it just hit me like a ton of bricks and that was a real moment for me it was like hearing you know my favorite band for the first time that's what it felt like. I mean, he's my ultimate hero. Joseph Campbell is my ultimate hero. And uh, like I said, I listen to him every single night. All night long, I have it going because I wake up a lot in the night. I have one earphone in the entire night and I have all of my Joseph Campbell lectures on a loop and it never ends. And uh, I'm sad when I have to turn it off in the morning because I love it so much. He's the best. <laughs> He just gets it. I thought you. I pictured you listening to like the Beatles on repeat. Right, I know. Well, I've been, I, I've gone through those phases too, but I'm in a Joseph Campbell phase right now. <laughs> it's like I can never think of what music to listen to. But I actually recently got a little iPod, 
and filled it up with my favorite 90s alternative rock. So that's like the music that I'm listening to right now. Like what are what are some of your jams? Like Jawbox was one of my favorites and um Sunny Day Real Estate and Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Archers of Loaf. Nice. Shudder to Think, that kind of stuff. And I love it. And I put Jawbreaker on there just cuz you have I to. always have to have Jawbreaker. Yeah. And I just shuffle that. Oh, Stone Temple Pilots too, man. Really? Such good songs. There's some I really wish good the songs. lyrics were better sometimes. You know, that's the only thing I wish. But I think melodies are amazing and the songwriting is just killer, the riffs, the chords. Yeah, I feel like Core was the only record I really got into, the first one. I oh guess. man. Sour the Girls third are great one, Um Tiny Music uh-huh. yeah. from the Vatican the gift shop of the Vatican or Vatican gift shop, whatever yeah. it's called, is unbelievable really unbelievable i mean the production is so cool sounds like a led zeppelin record but it's 90s rock it's so dope so joseph campbell and stp yeah it's weird man (laughs) i'm a big fan of both I, i feel on that podcast that chris literally saved the day yeah i know that's an awful awful pun and I'm also shocked that this new record, they hadn't used that yet. Yeah, it's surprising. You don't really see like seven albums in or whatever going with a self-titled. No. It's either the first or the last. <laughs> it's good, good to shake it up. Yeah, I think it's so. good to shake it up. Um, yeah, Chris, uh, man, I really want to have him back. I think we're going to make, make him like a regular guest whenever he's in town. Oh, I completely. I don't know, maybe we do another live one, Chris playing? Yeah, that would be sick. Yeah, you and- you think the last one sold out quick. And the night after we recorded that podcast, I saw them play. Uh, they played a sh- show uh, that our friend Dan Ozzy set up at St. Vitus, and they played all of sort of being cool and all old stuff. They went out at like one thirty in the morning, and it was probably one of the coolest shows I've, I've been to since I moved here. And I believe there's going to be an amazing picture of you and Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put yeah there's up some on good pictures of us. Instagram or Facebook. There's some good pictures of us singing along. And yeah, it was my 34th birthday, so thank you to Chris and Dan and everyone. That was an awesome way. Did they realize sing, I'm getting way too old to be doing this. Did they sing Saves the Happy Birthday? No, they did not. Oh, I did sorry. get a shout out, though, which was very, very sweet. That is super cool. Yeah. Okay, bootleg that noise. Speaking of Facebook, if you like what you are hearing now, throw us a line on Facebook, facebook.com slash track. You might be listing this podcast on our really cool looking website, goingofftrack.com. And if you're staring at it and you really do like what you hear and you go, hey, wait a minute, I think I want to keep this going. You can click a little donate button there and follow what it says. And you can just hurl some dough our way to make this podcast not be the easiest way to break even in business. We're on Twitter at Going Off Track. We all have our own indie Twitter handles. Mine is called the Rapidly Shrinking Twitter Followers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a similar one. Yeah. Oh, hey, also, um, I have a web series with my sister now. Yo, dude, okay. Oh, that's right. If you have not seen <laughs> let's, Sound let's, Advice. Let's, let's bury this at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you've not seen it's called Sound Advice with Janessa Slater. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sister plays a media coach. Uh, I don't know when you're hearing this but uh we just released one with fun yesterday and we have a couple more coming up and it's available at youtube above average um i think it's on nbc.com and hulu if it's not now i think and it again not eventually. to break the lead you co-created this I co-created it yes with yeah. vanessa you helped write this you helped put the guests on you helped put this together yeah it was a lot of work but i think it came out awesome and if you're into 
just like British, super awkward, uncomfortable moments and <laughs> really cheesy jokes, uh, you will love this as me and Vanessa are as well. The sound you're hearing is hundreds of people going, I'm in. Yeah, I hope so. But uh, yeah, thanks to Chris. Thanks to everyone. Thanks for listening. Um, anything else? Good night. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.